So 2 Samuel chapter 15, starting at verse 31. Now David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, O Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. When David arrived at the summit where people used to worship God, Hushai, the archite, was there to meet him, his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, If you go with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, Your majesty, I will be your servant. I was your father's servant in the past, but now I will be your servant. Then you can help me by frustrating Ithophel's advice. Won't the priest Zadok and Abiathar be there with you? Tell them anything you hear in the king's palace. Their two sons, Himeaz, son of Zadok, and Jonathan, son of Abiathar, are there with them. Send them to me with anything you hear. So Hushai, David's confidant, arrived at Jerusalem as Absalom was entering the city. When David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was Zeba, the steward of Meshibosheth, waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, 100 cakes of figs, and a skin of wine. The king asked Zeba, Why have you brought these? Zeba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and fruit are for the men to eat. And the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the wilderness. The king then asked, Where is your master's grandson? Ziba said to him, He is staying in Jerusalem because he thinks, Today the Israelites will restore to me my grandfather's kingdom. Then the king said to Ziba, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. I humbly bow, Ziba said. May I find favour in your eyes, my lord the king. As King David approached Behirim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Jura, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out! Get out, you murderer! You scoundrel! The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Then Abishai, son of Zeruah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruah? If he is cursing because the lord has said to him, Curse David, who can ask, Why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, My son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted and there he refreshed himself. Well, thank you very much indeed, Esme, for that reading. And uh, let me uh, add my welcome to Andy's. It's uh, great to see you this morning. Special welcome to uh, the Key Stage 2 uh, guys. It's very good to have you with us. Special welcome if you're new or newish. It's great to have you. And uh, I've been meaning to say this for a while, but uh, I want to say hello to the Gazal family who we prayed for uh, earlier because they tune every week uh, in Canada. And uh, it's really good to be able to pray for you and partner with you. And uh, we miss you. So uh, do have that passage open that Esme just read. You'll find an outline on the inside of the, uh, the sheet. 
And uh, let's look at this passage together. And before we do that, I'm going to uh, lead us in prayer. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, as we've already said and acknowledged in our songs, we are so thankful uh, that you've given us your word so that we might know you in Christ, know the truth about ourselves, about our world, and how to live for you in this world for your glory. Please help us now to listen. Please help us to learn and believe And most of all, to see Jesus, to see his goodness to us on the cross. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the most natural and normal instincts of human life, I think, is the avoidance of pain. If you think about it, most of us live our lives around the principle of avoiding as much pain and suffering and hardship as we possibly can whenever we have the choice. Trivial example, I go into the supermarket and I face a choice, don't I, between staggering around trying to balance the 27 items on my list on my arm or getting a trolley. And I will generally choose the trolley. When I get to the checkout, I face a choice. Do I go for the longest queue or the shortest queue? Or do I go for one of those self-service things? Never one of those. They are very painful. When I get home, will I choose the parking lot? closest to the house or furthest away from the house so I can take my shopping. It sounds like I do a lot of shopping, actually. I occasionally help my wife to do it, but you get the idea. When I slam the car door, I will instinctively move my hand out of the way so my hand doesn't get squashed in the car door, in the hinges, and so it goes on. When I ride my bike, I will wear a helmet. When I chop logs in the back garden, I will wear eye protection. When the dentist asks me, do I want an anesthetic? When he's about to rip my wisdom tooth out, I'll nod, yes, please. We are pretty good at avoiding pain and hardship and suffering. It's normal. It's natural. We build our lives around it. The avoidance of pain and suffering, however, is impossible for the Christian. The avoidance of pain and suffering is impossible for the Christian. Jesus does not just warn those considering following him that pain and suffering and hardship may come. He promises that it will come. Consider these three examples on the screen. Mark 8, 34. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Or Paul in 2 Timothy 3.12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or 1 Peter 2.21, to this unjust suffering you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. It is impossible for the Christian to avoid suffering. Now, of course, that does not mean that we are to go out looking for trouble, like masochists. On the contrary, there are many foolish and sinful things we can do that will bring us unnecessary pain, and there are many wise things we ought to do that will avoid pain. But if you're a Christian, if you follow Jesus, if you believe in God, not all pain and suffering can be avoided. Not all pain and suffering should be avoided. And this means if you're not yet a Christian this morning, and we're so glad to have you with us, but if you're not yet a Christian, I need to warn you that becoming a Christian will bring you all kinds of suffering and pain that you could avoid by not becoming a Christian. Becoming a follower of Jesus will add to the agony of your life. It's a great sales pitch, isn't it, for becoming a Christian? It's worth it, as anybody here will tell you, But you must know that becoming a Christian is not a route to the pain-free life. And if you are already a Christian this morning, then what this means is that suffering presents you with an opportunity. An opportunity to share Christ's suffering. An opportunity to test whether the gospel of Christ has actually captured your heart. 
Well, this is one of the lessons we're going to learn as we turn back to 2 Samuel. King David, as Andy very helpfully reminded us already, is going through a horrible time of suffering and conflict. Betrayed by his own son Absalom, rejected by the people of Israel, cast out of his own kingdom into exile. And as we look back on this story from a thousand years before Christ, three thousand years ago, it's important that we remember that this is a real person. And this suffering for David is real. In Psalm 41, he writes, My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? All my enemies whisper together against me. They wish the worst for me. Even my closest friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread has lifted his heel against me. Real person, real suffering. David is hated, despised. People want him dead. And why does this matter? Well, here's what we need to keep coming back to. Here's why it matters. Here's why we study the Old Testament. Because the sufferings of David anticipate and illuminate and magnify and prepare us for the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. As we see how David suffers, we are looking, aren't we, at the suffering of his greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're getting, if I can put it this way, as I put it a couple of weeks ago, we're getting into the head of Christ as he faces the cross. And so this is going to help us believe it, appreciate it, and know whether that cross has captured our hearts as we follow in his steps. Well, we pick up the story then, if you remember the map that Andy showed us, as David, weeping, reaches the top of the Mount of Olives, Jerusalem to his west, he's about to leave, Jerusalem's about to disappear from sight. And what happens now is he meets three people, three different people, and the lessons for us this morning come with each one of those meetings. Firstly then, a true friend in 31 to 37. Look again at verse 31. Now David had been told, Ahitophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. On his way up to the Mount of Olives, David is given news that his advisor, Ahitabel, has betrayed him. Now this act of treachery is a huge blow to David. Not only is Ahitabel certainly a close friend, almost certainly the one he mentions in Psalm 41, he who shared my bread has lifted his heel against me, but he's a hugely significant member of David's team. Just glance across to 16.23 and see what the narrator says about him. He says, In those days, the advice Ahitophel gave was like that of one who inquires of God. This was how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahitophel's advice. In terms of wisdom, Ahitophel is as good as it gets. It would be like having Ben Stokes on the under-11s cricket team. You wouldn't want him to defect to the other side, would you? But for reasons we will never know, that is what this famously wise counselor has done. He has defected. It's a huge blow for David. Well, what can David do? Well, look at what he does. Verse 31. So David prayed, O Lord, turn Ahitophel's counsel into foolishness. Ben Stokes defects onto the opposing team. What do you pray? <laughs> Make him totally uncoordinated. Make him drop every ball. Turn his counsel into foolishness. Now, on the way through, there's a little lesson for us here, isn't it, about prayer. David prays what is sometimes called an arrow prayer. In the heart of the moment, in the crisis, whoosh, a quick prayer goes up to God because David believes in God. He believes the God of the universe who can change everything. And this is a good reminder to us. If you believe in God, here is what prayer is. Sometimes people confuse prayer and talk about it as a two-way conversation or the way God speaks. No, prayer is a one-way conversation. Prayer is not how God speaks to us. It's how we speak to God. And what is prayer? Basically, it is asking God to do things that only God can do. Of course, it's good to set aside time to pray regularly and thoroughly, but you can also pray like this, an arrow prayer, an emergency prayer, because God is big. 
And he can do anything. Just ask, just pray. And as it turns out, God will answer this particular prayer in a spectacular way. But you'll have to come back next week and the week after to see how he does it. But what we do see now is the beginning of an answer. And we need to pay careful attention to it. Look at verse 32. When David arrived at the summit where people used to worship God, Hushai the archite was there to meet him, his robe torn and dust on his head. Here is the first stage of the answer to David's prayer. He comes in the form of this old friend of David suddenly turning up, bedraggled, dirty, showing solidarity with David's cause by the fact that he's in mourning for the failure of the kingdom. This is the first part of the answer to the prayer. But look at the next stage of the answer, verse 33. David said to him, If you go with me, you'll be a burden to me. I take it that Hushai is an old man. But verse 34, If you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king. I was your father's servant in the past, but now I'll be your servant. Then you can help me by frustrating Ahitophel's advice. Do you notice again something we keep coming back to in these chapters? This great biblical theme of God's sovereignty and human responsibility working together. See, God is all-powerful. He could, if he wanted to, have answered David's prayer instantly and supernaturally. He could have sent a bolt of lightning to Ahitophel. He could have poisoned his porridge, sending him mad, or something like that. But look what he does. He does what God normally does. Because God is so big... He doesn't need to send bolts of lightning or poison his porridge. God is so big that he can work naturally. He can work through human agents. In this case, he works by sending an old man to David who looks like he's had a fight with a bush. And then David seizes the opportunity. And notice David sees no contradiction between asking God to sort out the problem And then verse 33 and 34, being the means to sorting out the problem himself. There's no tension in the Bible between God's sovereign rule and human action. There is no problem praying for something and then working flat out to be the answer to the prayer. In fact, I want to suggest that if you believe in God, if you pray, you probably do this all the time. Have you ever prayed for a safe journey? I know somebody who prays every time they get into the car for a safe journey. He believes in the sovereignty of God. But I tell you, he does not then drive at 90 miles an hour down the motorway with no seatbelt on, with his eyes closed. Have you ever prayed for your children to be safe? You don't then let them loose and say, well, there's the electricity socket. Here's a screwdriver. There's the road. Here's the keys to the car. Of course you don't. You don't neglect them that way, but you pray for their safety. Perhaps you've prayed for your children to believe. But you don't then neglect to teach them the gospel every day, to make sure they understand the priorities of Christian life and church and so on. You raise them as believers. Maybe you've prayed for God to provide you with a good job and a reasonable income so you can be generous to others and support gospel work. But having prayed that, you don't then sit around watching TV or YouTube videos all day, you work hard, you write your CV, you apply, and so forth. And maybe you're someone who has prayed for your unbelieving friends to be converted, but when you have the opportunity, you speak, you persuade, explain. See, we're seeing here a little glimpse, aren't we, of the normal way God works. He is so big that he doesn't need to intervene into the machine like with the sort of miracle and the supernatural, he can do those things. But he's so big, he can work through the normal human ways and workings of the world. And what that means is sometimes God makes you the answer to the prayer. And so if you're a Christian this morning, what that means is that you need to be someone who prays and strives to bring God's kingdom about at the same time with no contradiction, no tension. And notice it's not one or the other. It's not work without prayer. That's faithlessness. It's not prayer without work. That's presumption. It's both together. Ask God to do big things. And then be flat out to be part of the answer. But also notice how this connects to David's suffering. See, David is not a fatalist. He's a believer. 
And what that means is, even though he can see the pain that is coming, he asks God to reduce it. He asks God to avoid it. He wants God to avoid the pain of losing the kingdom. And so he prays. And David can see that Hushai can be a brilliant asset back in Jerusalem. He can be the answer to the prayer, frustrate the wisdom of Ahitophel. Verse 35 and 36, he sends him back to join this network of spies so that Hushai can be the means, as we'll see he is in a couple of chapters' time, the means of turning Ahitophel's wisdom into foolishness. And so verse 37, David's friend Hushai arrived at Jerusalem just as Absalom was entering the city. I think we can imagine he takes a shower, he cleans himself up, he puts a fresh set of clothes on. He's there in the court just as Absalom is arriving. And he in time will be the means that God answers that prayer and avoids David greater suffering. Well, that's the first person David meets. He continues on his way and he now meets a second person in 16.1-4. Remember the map? David is passing now out of the site of Jerusalem on the other side of the Mount of Olives on his way to the Jordan, on his way to the wilderness. And remember that he left Jerusalem in a great rush. Chances are he didn't have time to pack uh, provisions for the journey. And so how fortunate that he now meets this kind and thoughtful friend Ziba, or so it seems. 16 verse 1. When David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was Ziba, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, 100 cakes of figs, and a skin of wine. Now, one of the uh, benefits of doing what we do, of working through books of the Bible consecutively, is we we kind of learn, and and as we go on, uh, we learn cumulatively. And you may remember from chapter 9, if you were here, that this Zeba character is a bit of a, ambiguous character. We're not quite sure what to make of him. He is Saul's former servant, and when David uh, took Mephibosheth in, Jonathan's son, who was crippled in both feet, he ordered Ziba to manage the family farm to provide for Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. And you may remember back in chapter 9 that Ziba did not seem very enthusiastic about that plan. And this is possibly the reason for David's surprise that he has brought all these provisions in verse 2. Notice David doesn't thank him. He says, verse 2, why have you brought these? And Zebra answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and fruit are for the men to eat, the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the desert. But notice that really isn't an answer to the question, why? He just tells him the obvious, doesn't he? The donkeys are to ride on, the bread is to eat, the fruit, to, the wine is to drink, and so on. He doesn't explain how he came by these lavish provisions. He doesn't tell him what his motives are. And so David, with his suspicions aroused, asks a follow-up question, verse 3. Where is your master's grandson? And Ziba said to him, he's staying in Jerusalem because he thinks today the house of Israel will give me back my grandfather's kingdom. Now, if David had stopped to think at this point, his suspicions may have been roused further. Taken on face value, Zeba's claim is very hard to believe that Mephibosheth would entertain the idea that Absalom, of all people, after all his clever scheming, would just hand over the kingdom to this crippled grandson of Saul with no supporters. It's just a fantasy. And it turns out in chapter 19, with apologies for the plot spoiler, that Ziba is in fact lying. This is a moment of self-serving opportunism. And knowing that, you can almost see the smugness of Ziba standing there with all his donkeys and his display of kindness, waiting for the moment to betray his master to the king to make himself look like David's most loyal friend. But if we read on, we'll find out that he's no friend of David's. He's simply in it for himself. And his plan works. Somehow David is taken in and the encounter finished with this 
flourish of flattery that was not forthcoming last time. Verse 4, the king said to Ziba, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. I humbly bow, Ziba said, may I find favor in my eyes, in your eyes, my lord, the king. And so here is the second person David meets on his way to the wilderness. He looks like a friend, but he is in fact an enemy. He is out to cause David pain and suffering like so many people by telling him that his friend Mephibosheth has betrayed him. It doesn't look like an attack, does it? Bringing all this fruit and wine and bread. But it is an attack. As one Bible commentator puts it, this is a reminder to us that the world's smiles are even more dangerous than its frowns. But the frowns can be pretty hard too. And that brings us to the third character in 16:5 to 14. Look with me at verse 5. As David approached Baharim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. Like Ziba, we are told that this man, Shimei, is from the clan of Saul. Mention of Saul puts what Shimei does in the context of that long and painful conflict that has rumbled throughout the second half of 1 Samuel between David, who God has chosen, and Saul, whom God has rejected. Shimei here seems to unleash all the bottled rage of the house of Saul, madly flinging dirt and pelting stones at David and his men, notice, as he follows him along. He's like a human volcano. Listen to what he says. There's no flattery here. Here is a very honest enemy. Verse 7. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the house of Saul, to whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a man of blood. Now, Shimei's words are designed to be as painful and as offensive as they can be. Get out. Full of irony. Because getting out is what David is doing. Man of blood, literally murderer, scoundrel, somebody who's utterly worthless. One translation has it like this, you blood-stained fiend of hell, you murderer, you monster. I was taught at school, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. I remember the headmistress telling us that, and I thought, I'm not sure that's, that's right. I, I think... I think these words can hurt. It's a useless piece of nonsense, isn't it? Of course, words can hurt far more than sticks and stones. Far more damagingly, far more deeply than a few stones pelted across a hillside. It's Shimei's words that really hurt. And notice who he is speaking to. In case we have forgotten, the narrator reminds us in verse 5. By giving David that title, King David, it's the first time he's used that since chapter 13. No wonder Abishai, the brother of David's commander Joab, reacts as he does. Verse 9. Then Abishai, son of Zeruah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. Dead dog is a sort of Semitism, a sort of Hebrew kind of way of saying the lowest of the low. We find that hard in our culture because we kind of like dogs and we even treat dogs better than children in some cases. But back in the first century, sorry, the first millennia BC, dogs were mangy animals that lived outside the house. And so a dead dog is the lowest of the low. And Abishai says this lowest of the low, this Dead dog dares to curse the highest of the high. God's anointed. God's Messiah. And Abishai has learned that lesson from 1 Samuel, that to curse David is to curse God. To mistreat God's Messiah is how you mistreat God. And so isn't verse 9 understandable? Taking off his head will quieten him down. 
which is why David's response is so important to understand. Look at verse 10. The king said, what do you and I have in common, you sons of Zerah? This is not the last time David will use that exact phrase to distance himself from Joab and Abishai's way of doing things. Let's think about this. See, how do you deal with someone who disagrees with you? Someone who would tax you. Well, there is a normal way of doing it, and it's the way of power. It's the way you see in communist China. It's the way you see in Putin's Russia, where people who disagree, they just disappeared. They're removed forcibly, silenced. You see it through history, off with his head. I'm really enjoying Hilary Mantel's novels about Henry VIII. And this is, this is the way you deal with people who disagree, off with his head. But you also see it in our modern Western democracies, don't you, where the ruling elites use council culture or shame or media control to silence people they disagree with. It might seem more peaceful, but it's, it's Abishai's way of doing things, off with his head. Silence them. The way of power. But look at verse 10 again. Notice this. What do you and I have in common? It's very striking, isn't it? David says that to his keenest supporter, to his most loyal army commander. See, what is it? Well, David's a free speech man, we could say. He's prepared to be offended. He does not need to use his power to silence people because he knows the truth will win in the end. But there's more to this. There's more. David has another way of thinking completely. Let's look at this. Let's understand this. There are three reasons that David insists that Shimei should be allowed to curse away. Look at it carefully with me. First, because he knows God is responsible for what is happening. Verse 10. If he is cursing, because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? Now this does not mean that God condones or approves of Shimei's hatred and lies. Neither does it mean that Shimei was conscious of cursing David in obedience to God, as if David had literally given him a, as if God had literally given him a command to do this. But David believes in God. He believes that God is in charge of this world. And he understands that what happens to him happens according to God's will. That this man may have an evil purpose in afflicting this suffering and humiliation on him. But that doesn't mean that behind his evil, God doesn't have some good purpose, some other purpose. And so that gives David a kind of freedom, doesn't it? Instead of wallowing in self-pity, he says... Let him curse. This is from God. So that's the first thing. David knows God is responsible for his suffering. Secondly, and this is the hard one, this is the, this is the hard bit of this morning, if you like. Hard for us, not intellectually, but hard for us to believe and understand. David knows that he deserves this. In fact, David knows that he deserves worse than this. Look at verse 11. David said to Abishai and all his officials, My son, who is my own flesh, is trying to take my life. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord has told him to. So you remember that David had been told in chapter 12 by the prophet Nathan that there would be terrible consequences from his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uzziah, her husband. And he also knew from chapter 7 that while he was never going to lose God's love, he was never going to have his kingship taken away, God would discipline him like a son when he did wrong with the floggings of men. And so David is now recognizing that here are some of the consequences of his sin. Here is God disciplining his child. And so David here is deeply, deeply humbled by God. And it's not a nice thing to experience. 
Leave him alone. Let him curse. For God has told him to. But there's a third reason in verse 12. Verse 12. It may be that the Lord will see my distress and repay me with good for the cursing I'm receiving today. That word good, as uh, we saw in the reading, is, is, is a, a covenant kind of blessing kind of idea. The promises of God being fulfilled. But the translation of the word distress in verse 12 is also something that has been debated by Bible scholars over the centuries. See, the issue is that the oldest and most reliable Hebrew manuscripts do not have the word distress. They have the word iniquity. The word sin. And so you can imagine some later translators, particularly in the Greek translations in the first uh, 400 years before Christ, they, they, they couldn't understand why you would put iniquity in there. Maybe the Lord will see my iniquity and repay me. Can you see why that's a problem? Can you see why some later translations didn't understand that? Look at verse 12 again. Maybe the Lord will see my sin and repay me for my sin with good. Doesn't make sense, does it? You can see why there's an issue. But I'm absolutely convinced that iniquity is the right word. Because this is the God David knows. Remember what Nathan also said to him in chapter 12, that while there will be consequences of David's sin, God has Forgiven his sin. David knows that God is a God who repays sin with forgiveness, with covenant blessing, with faithfulness. And so David knows that while the consequences will be terrible and will take some time to fall out, David himself, in his soul, is okay because he's okay with God. That no matter how bad things get, David knows he deserves even worse. And yet, in God's amazing grace, he's been forgiven. So in his suffering, which he deserves, he has joy in the grace of God. He does not need to exact justice on this man. He doesn't need to win. He's okay with God. And so look at verse 12 again. Make sure we understand this. It may be that the Lord will see my sin and return good to me for the cursing I'm receiving today. A few years ago, I was in bed for a few days recovering from a minor operation. And it was in the days before... Netflix or Amazon, or it was DVDs, and I'd got to the end, I didn't have the energy to read, you know what it's like when you're not well, I was scraping the barrel of the DVDs, I'd watched The Hobbit, you know, 12 times, whatever it was that I was watching, and I found a film by Eminem, the rapper, written by Eminem, starring Eminem, directed by Eminem, I wouldn't recommend this film. Uh, I was scraping the barrel, but it did have a really good ending, and I filed it away, and I thought, oh, well, that could be useful. Well, here it is. Uh, in, you have to know that in America, in Detroit, they had these rap contests. And the idea is, as I could understand it, and this is completely new to me, is that, as far as I know, you, it's like a boxing match with words. And you have to insult and curse your opponent, and the winner is the one who does it the best. You got the, you got the idea? It's a boxing match with words. Now, I don't recommend this film. There's a lot of swearing in it. Do not look up this film. But as I say, I was scraping the barrel. Now, the character Eminem, who plays himself before he'd become famous, is a poor white guy living in a caravan on the suburbs of Detroit. He's trying to make it in the world of rapping, and he keeps being rejected. And he enters this kind of contest, and he really wants to win, and he really needs to win because he he needs the money. Got the picture? That's the contest. This is the end of the film I'm now going to describe. See, Eminem is a very clever dude. He makes it to the final of this contest. And instead of cursing the opponent, he curses himself. He trashes himself. 
in rapper poetry, of course. He says all the worst things that he can possibly say about himself. He says, you think I'm a piece of scum? I'm a far worse piece of scum than you think. You think I'm trailer trash? I'm far more trash than you think. I'm way... I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I'm way, <clears throat> I'm way, way, way worse than you could possibly think. And he ends with this line. He says, here, tell these people something they don't already know about me. And the other guy gets up, picks up the microphone, and he... He's just lost for words. He has nothing to say. He has not a word. Because all the insults have already been hurled. Nothing to fling at his opponent because he's already flung it himself. And Eminem wins the contest. It's a great ending to a really bad film. <laughs> and here is the secret of David's peace, his freedom, his hope, even his joy in the midst of suffering. Not by getting Shimei's head cut off, but by turning to the inexhaustible grace of God who one day will take upon himself all the curses. So there is nothing that we can say about him that God does not already know. And so verse 13, David's men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside, cursing as he went, throwing stones, and showering him with dirt. No wonder, verse 14, the king arrives exhausted and then no doubt refreshes himself with the provisions that Ziba has provided. Well, let me conclude then with two reflections. First, on our suffering. Reflection on our suffering. See, there is a kind of false gospel in our world that is very popular. It's a gospel made famous by churches like Hillsong, and preachers like Joel Osteen, it's the gospel that said God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy, and anything else is a disaster. And of course, we don't believe that here, do we? Or do we? Well, I'll be honest, I think I do believe that sometimes. See, I'm a generation Xer. I'm a product of the most materialistic, me-centered society the world has ever seen. I'm a child of the Thatcher years, where we were told if you wanted something, you could have it. But more significantly, I'm a child of Adam, believing deep down that the world revolves around me and God exists to make me happy. And the culture in which we live, where advertisers and psychologists and salesmen and celebrities and the education system echoes that, and tells me that I am worth it, that I can do whatever I want to do. And so in theory, I reject the Hillsong gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity, that God wants you to be happy. He wants your best life now. Name it and claim it. At the same time, part of me actually believes it. I believe that I deserve an easy life. I don't believe I, need, I deserve to suffer. And so part of me reacts to pain by saying, this should not be happening to me. And when suffering comes, my instinct is bitterness and anger and to set up a little pity party, to find someone else to blame. The society, the situation, my upbringing, something that somebody has or hasn't done, to find somebody else to blame and to wallow and sulk. And I suspect I'm not the only one here. And so I think this is an incredibly helpful lesson for us to learn from David and see his freedom and his joy in suffering. Because David believed in the sovereign God who Jesus taught will not let a sparrow fall to the ground without his permission, who knows every hair of your head and will not let a hair of your head get harmed without his good will. And purpose. Those who I love and rebuke and discipline, says the Lord to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3 19. Those I love and sorry, those I love, I rebuke and discipline. Or as my friend Jerry Straker, pastor of church by the bay, said to me last week, God loves you too much to give you an easy life. And what this means is that experiencing suffering 
may not be as bad as it first seems. Yes, of course, it is bad. It is terrible. I've seen some suffering within our church family this week. People suffering unjust accusations. People suffering pain and disappointment, bereavement. People suffering all kinds of things. I can tell you it hurts. But you can't always sort out the injustice. Sometimes you have to say, let him curse. Sometimes you have to say, well, we don't always have to be right. We don't always have to win. We don't always have to claim our rights. You can't always come out with your reputation intact. Why not rather be wronged, Paul says to the Corinthians? Why not rather be cheated? And it means, like David's men notice, caught up in Shimei's outburst in verse 6, that we get to share in the sufferings of Christ. See, we don't know why suffering comes. It may come for all sorts of reasons. But we know that God is in control. And while we cannot see the purpose of it, we know that God has one. Don Carson wrote an article that gives an example. It's rather a long quote, but I think it's worth quoting in full. He wrote this about a hypothetical woman in her middle years being diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. He says this, What is God doing? My little brain can imagine several possibilities. It's ironic if you know Don Carson. He's got quite a big brain. But compared to God, he says, My little brain can imagine several possibilities. At one level, he may be providentially allowing the effluences of the fall to take their course. He may be preparing for eternity. It's a great grace to know that when you're going to die and prepare for it. He may be shocking her 20-something-year-old son who is living his life indifferent to the gospel. He may use her testimony about the joy of the Lord even in the midst of suffering to call other children into vocational ministry. He may be using her as a way to teach people in her church how to die well. He may be teaching her husband to slow down and care for his family. He may be sparing her from living long enough to witness the moral destruction of her daughter. Her funeral may be the means by which several of her unconverted relatives for whom she has been praying will come to faith. Perhaps she is hiding some deep bitterness and hate in her life, and God is using this means to confront her. What does the omniscient God think he is doing? We have no idea. Sometimes we have to cover our mouths and confess in faith that we cannot grasp all that God is doing. But we know that he has a purpose. End of quote. And if we can suffer like David... It will show that the gospel of Jesus has captured our hearts. That we know for sure that God can be trusted, that he has our best interests at heart. Well, how do we really know that? Well, that's our second reflection. We know that because of Jesus' suffering. We said that what we're seeing in David is an anticipation of the sufferings of Christ. And Jesus himself had a shimmy experience. Listen to this from Mark's Gospel. Just before he was arrested and crucified, we read this, that some began to spit on him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. It was bad enough to curse David, the sinful, flawed, human king. But to mock and spit and hit and curse and crucify Christ, God's sinless son. Jesus, who could call down an army of angels. What a terrible thing this was, and yet... He prays, Father, forgive them. Here is the difference between David's suffering and Jesus, however. David knew he was suffering in connection with his sin. 
Jesus knew he was suffering for our sin. As they hurled their insults at him, it was insults we richly deserved. As the hatred and curse of the world was poured out on him, here is the judgment we deserve for our rejection of God. And so can God be trusted in suffering? Does he have our best interests in heart? Look at the cross and know that nothing ultimately can touch you. So we can do an M&M. Tell these people something they don't already know about me. Well, let's pray that we'll do that. One Peter, chapter 2, on the sheet. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your sovereignty and grace you have saved us by the sufferings of Jesus foreshadowed in David. And you enable us both to pray and to strive for the kingdom of Jesus to grow. Thank you that as we grasp the sufferings of Jesus on the cross, we learn to share in his sufferings without bitterness and with joy, knowing that as we share in his sufferings, we will also share in his resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.